It's counterintuitive, but dropping your most effective tool might be the one way to be most effective. Hey, welcome to On My Walk, the reading podcast that helps you capture reading's aha moments and apply them to your life and leadership. Today, I want to share an interesting aha moment from my reading of Range by David Epstein. The essence of his book is found in its subtitle, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. Now, Epstein is going to show us, with a lot of research behind him, that in a world dominated by specialists, it's the generalist that is actually going to survive and thrive. And I highly recommend this book. In Chapter 7, Learning to Drop Your Familiar Tools, Epstein wants us to see the importance of abandoning, at least being willing to, our familiar tools in order to make better decisions. To make his point, Epstein's going to highlight NASA's Challenger space shuttle disaster. Forest firefighters who could have saved themselves, but actually died because they were unwilling to let go of their familiar fighting tools, even when it was the very tool itself that slowed them down from running away when the fire got too close and too intense and too hard to fight. Now, he's also going to shine the spotlight on high wire artist Carl Walenda who fell to his death because he grasped his tool, his balancing pole, and not the wire below him. Arnold Toynbee said, No tool is omnicompetent. And to this, Epstein adds, There is no such thing as a master key that will unlock all doors. Now to explain what he means, let's start with a Challenger disaster. Epstein notes that NASA's master tool for decision-making was quantitative analysis. Hunches, unpacked by data, were not allowed on NASA floors. But as Epstein points out, the faulty decision to send the Challenger on its fateful mission wasn't a failure of quantitative analysis. NASA's real mistake was to rely on quantitative analysis too much. Listen to this. In four separate fires in the 1990s, 23 elite wildland firefighters refused orders to drop their tools and perished beside them. Even when Rhodes eventually dropped his chainsaw, he felt like he was doing something unnatural. White found similar phenomena in Navy seamen who ignored orders to remove steel-toed shoes when abandoning a ship and drowned or punched holes in life rafts, fighter pilots in disabled planes refusing orders to eject, and Carl Walenda, the world-famous high-wire performer who fell 120 feet to his death when he teetered and grabbed first at his balance pole rather than the wire beneath him. He momentarily lost the pole while falling and grabbed it again in the air. Dropping one's tools is a proxy for unlearning, for adaptation, for flexibility, Wyke wrote. It is the very unwillingness of people to drop their tools that turns some of these dramas into tragedies. For him, firefighters were an example and a metaphor for what he learned while studying normally reliable organizations that clung to trusty methods, even when they led to bewildering decisions. Listening to that, I can't help but think about how this applies to multiple decisions that are being made with respect to COVID-19 all around the world. In my sector, higher education, and specifically biblical higher education, I have to ask myself, am I relying too much on one decision-making tool? These words from Epstein also hit home. Jevedin joined NASA in 1990 and was a keen observer of the culture, 
When I was coming through NASA, he said, I had the intuition that there's a real conformance culture. Early in his tenure, he attended a team-building class offered by the agency. On the very first day, the instructor asked the class, rhetorically, for the single most important principle in decision-making. His answer, to get consensus. And I said, I don't think the people who launched the space shuttle Challenger agree with that point, Jevedon told me. Consensus is nice to have, but we shouldn't be optimizing happiness. We should be optimizing our decisions. I just had a feeling all along that there was something wrong with the culture. We didn't have a healthy tension in the system. NASA still had its hallowed process, and Jevedon saw everywhere a collective culture that nudged conflict into darkened corners. You almost couldn't go into a meeting without someone saying, let's take that offline, he recalled, just as Morton Thiokol had done for the infamous offline caucus. Jevedon, in his own way, was in favor of balancing the typical formal process culture with a dose of informal individualism, as Krantz and von Braun once had. The chain of communication has to be informal, he told me, completely different from the chain of command. He wanted a culture where everyone had the responsibility to protest if something didn't feel right. He decided to go prospecting for doubts. So what's the application? No doubt there are many. But for me, I want to be careful to entertain means of decision-making analysis outside of my familiar frame of reference. That means I'm taking into consideration these four insights I gleaned from Epstein in this chapter. Here they are. Number one, keep the chain of communication informal. Now, we're working, like a lot of people, with a senior COVID-19 emergency task force. I have to ask myself, am I treating them like the great Oz, or am I willing to hear what those outside that group are thinking? You see, when someone sits outside my table, I expect that individual to contribute his or her expertise and thoughts, even when those opinions may conflict with the consensus of the group. Now, here's what I'm asking myself. Am I willing to listen in the same way to those outside the table, outside the COVID task force? Or is that person shut out because of the formality of our process? Number two, prospect for doubts. That's what Gevedon did. When he stepped into Nassau, he recognized a culture that was data-heavy. In his opinion, too often, too data-heavy. So he went looking for those who were willing to offer opinions contrary to what the data was showing. And again, this is not to say that data is not important. It's very important. But what he recognized was a particular way of approaching the data that was actually stifling the decision-making capability of the group. Number three, move from ladder to concentric circles. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Epstein points out that former Girl Scout CEO Frances Hesselbein implemented a circular management approach on her team. Hesselbein was in the middle of concentric circles so information could flow from many directions. Anyone in that circle had opportunities to connect and communicate with her. And in this way, she avoided what I would call the gate model, where a single superior acts as the gate or the channel through which all information must flow. Four, hunches are allowed. In other words, I have to leave room for calculated hunches. Epstein notes, 
When entire specialists grow up around devotion to a particular tool, the result can be disastrous myopia. I think Epstein is delivering a very important lesson when it comes to making decisions, and it is my aha moment today. Namely, don't be afraid to drop your most familiar decision-making tools, whether that be a process or a pattern or a specific approach. Letting go may mean the difference between a good decision and a bad one. It may even mean the difference between life and death. And that's my thought on my walk with David Epstein and Range, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. Now, my question is this, what are you going to do with that thought on your walk through life today? 